1: Hi, New Books Network listeners. Today's podcast is on history, and we are welcoming award-winning journalist Andrew Dubbins to the show. Andrew Dubbins is the author of Into Enemy Waters, a World War II story of the demolition divers who became the Navy SEALs. As always, I'm your NBN host, Nathan Moore. Andrew Dubbins is an award-winning journalist and author whose work has appeared in Alta, Slate. Los Angeles Magazine, The Daily Beast, and other media outlets. He has covered drug smugglers and DEA agents, Costa Nostra Capros and FBI investigators, Maasai lion hunters turned conservationists, and civil rights pioneers. His writing has been recognized by the Los Angeles Press Club in its 2021 SoCal Journalism Awards, as well as among longform.org's best articles of 2021. And the Daily Beast Best Reads of 2017. Several of his narrative nonfiction projects have been optioned for film and television, and he graduated with honors from Georgetown University and lives in Los Angeles. Open us, open up to us, Andrew, about how your journalism career brought you to the topic of Navy SEALs.
0: Sure, thank you for that kind introduction, and. It was on a visit to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, which is a fantastic museum. I recommend it to anyone with even a passing interest in World War II. And I was walking through a exhibit on the Pacific Theater and I saw a swim fin behind behind-the-glass display case and, you know, surrounded by heavy weapons and armored vehicles that stood out as such a low tech object. And so I read the description and it said it belonged to, you know, a member of the underwater demolition teams in world war two. And I consider myself a student of world war two and had never heard of these combat swimmers who went in and scouted the beaches in advance of, uh, allied landings. So I started digging into it and researching and, uh, you know, when it came time that I was interested to write a book, somebody had said, pick a topic that's going to sustain your interest for two years. And I decided, you know, I really want to uh, jump into this topic and, and learn more. And so that's was kind of my foray.
1: Baseball is a metaphor that comes up in your book. Um, why baseball and how is that a metaphor for, you know, UDT and Navy SEALs?
0: Yeah, thank you for picking up on that because I do – Write a lot about baseball, you know, in George's story in the beginning, and really, I see it as, uh, you know, it's it's meaningful in that it was what George Morgan sacrificed in order to join the underwater demolition team. So, to summarize a little bit of the book, he he was a great pitcher, just growing up playing in New Jersey in the sandlots, and right around the time at seventeen that he he uh, joined the Navy, he had a little gap between when he was called to duty and he decided to try out for the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was always his favorite team. He listened to them on the radio since he was a little kid and he, you know, went to a tryout, he pitched, he didn't think he was going to have a chance. It was out in Trenton and sure enough, the Dodgers sent him a letter. We want you as a pitcher for one of our farm teams. Got to meet Branch Rickey who signed a contract with him. He's the famous, baseball manager who'd signed Jackie Robinson a few years later. And it was a dream come true for him, a childhood dream. And, you know, he was about to be a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. At almost the same time the letter from the Dodgers arrived, he got a letter from the Navy saying, you know, you've been called up. It's, it's time to go to basic training. So there was always that wonder, what if, you know, what if I stayed and pitched for the Dodgers? And, I carry that through the book. He's playing on a crooked field, baseball field in Maui, just you know, on R&R relaxing between training and thinking about, you know, maybe instead of playing on the side of a volcano, Haleakala, I could be at I could be, you know, playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So it's a theme I do carry through the story as as something he he sacrifices and, you know, a lot of young men, teenagers sacrifice far more. And the
1: top-secret underwater demolition teams, what are they and how are they part of the origin of the Navy SEALs?
0: So the UDTs were an elite group of combat swimmers, and they scouted Pacific Islands uh, in, in front of the landing forces in World War II and were used in nearly every major amphibious assault in the Pacific theater. And you know, minimalist uniform of swim trunks, fins and dive masks and pioneering tactics of measuring the underwater beach approaches. Uh, And as far as how the Navy SEALs, they they inherited many of the tactics that were used by the World War II frogmen, and that includes swimming in stealth, um, underwater demolition, You know, they still practice secret deployments, same as the the top secret UDT did. And, of course, their their rigorous training um, started all the way back in World War II. They had Hell Week. And what was that Hell Week and how did it get started during World War II? Yeah, so Hell Week was the first week of training at Fort Pierce, which is in Florida and now houses another great museum, the National Navy SEAL UDT Museum and uh so draper kaufman who's considered the father of underwater demolition and i wrote about him extensively in my book he asked the scouts and raiders which trained at fort pierce at the same time he said i want to condense your eight week training into one week and they came up with a schedule that was daily swims in rough ocean you know nightly swims with heavy packs they'd have to take. 10-mile runs in the soft sand and, and rigorous rubber raft outings, all of this on barely any sleep, barely any food. And Draper's original name for it was Indoctrination Week, and it was the men who came up with the nickname Hell Week all the way back in the 40s. And now that's a famous selection process for the Navy SEALs. I would say probably even more rigorous, certainly more rigorous today, but had a very high rate of attrition even back in World War II because Draper wanted only the toughest, most committed young men as demolition men. Can you
1: describe some of those pioneering tactics of these World War II frogmen, including things like leaping out of speeding landing craft or measuring the ocean depth?
0: Sure. Yeah. So the stealth swimming, which I mentioned, was was a big Um, emphasis and that was using the breaststroke and the side stroke so that their bodies didn't break the water. They didn't want to create a splash and be spotted by an enemy gunner. Um, And they, you know, learned to swim on their side so that their masks didn't reflect the sunlight. They learned to only surface in the troughs between waves as opposed to on the crest of the wave where they'd be easier to spot. So learn to approach the beach in secret, and then holding their breath was another important one because they discovered that enemy bullets slowed down a few feet under the ocean surface, uh, which allowed them to dive underneath it. So, in order to stay concealed and to keep under the the ordnance, um, they they brought in actually brought in a Hawaiian pearl diver into the Maui training base and got some instructions on how to hold your breath longer underwater. Um, all of which was pioneering. This was long before. You know, scuba diving was a sport. Free diving was a sport. They were some of the early, um, <laughs> early free divers, you could say. Uh, and then measuring ocean depth, they were using reels of fishing line, uh, which a lot of the men came up with these ideas. Draper Kaufman was very open to taking suggestion, any good idea from an officer or you know an enlisted man. And one of them was to use a weighted fishing line and. Drop it to the ocean floor, and there were unique cloth knots. And uh depending on which knot was at the surface, they could tell the depth and they'd scribble it on a little plexiglass slate that they kept tied to their knee with a uh with a waterproof pen. And then you mentioned the the speeding landing craft, yes, you know, they wanted to get in and out of the water as quickly as possible because the boats drew enemy fire and they didn't want it sitting there being a sitting duck. So they would tie a rubber raft to the side of their speeding landing craft, roll over the gunwale of the landing craft into the rubber raft, and jump into the water holding their dive mask. And you can find video of that online. Um, and then for pickup, uh, you know, rather than slow down and pick each uh, frogman up individually, they, they had a, two UDT men kneeling in the rubber raft. One of them held this steel cord rope ring. And as it sped down the line of men in the water, they'd hook their arm through the ring and the momentum of the boat would tug them out of the water into the raft. Um, And another guy called the catcher, another baseball term, would drag them in and and they'd climb over the the gunwale to safety. So all of these were, you know, (laughs) they were just learning this as they went. Um, None of this had been done before. So pioneering is certainly the right word.
1: What about your research process for Into Enemy Waters? Uh, what was it like, um, and how were you able to tell the stories of these veterans?
0: So spent a lot of time talking to uh, Mr. Morgan, who is so generous with his time. And it was the, the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we spent a lot of time talking on the phone. But I was fortunate to get to visit him, too, in Arizona. He's so gracious, just... Um, very lucid and great recall and 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 then probably the other half was was in the archives I read and watched transcripts of UDT oral histories Draper Kaufman's was was such an asset that's housed at the Naval Institute archives at Annapolis and anyone can can read that his recollections of the war Um, I also read every book and article I could find on the UDTs there a few good histories written over the years. Uh visited, you know, once COVID kind of eased up, I was able to visit the uh the National Navy SEAL Museum in Florida that I mentioned. The History of Diving Museum is another great museum in Florida about uh you know early diving. And uh yeah, talked to some family members of Frogmen, talked to a couple of Korean War era frogmen, uh, did uh, quite extensive research.
1: And how was your experience meeting and interviewing the 95-year-old nine, George Morgan?
0: It was such a privilege. Uh, you know, beyond just World War II, I I'm, I love history. And just talking to him about the growing up in the Depression, which is in my book, and he saw the Hindenburg um, fly over, which is so historic. And he just saw, you know, and trying out for the Brooklyn Dodgers meeting branch, Ricky, I mentioned. Um, so he was on the periphery of, of all this history and and yet always downplayed his role, didn't understand why I I thought this was such a great story. <laughs> uh, you know, he said, I was just one of millions of fellas who who volunteered to fight in World War II, typical humility of the greatest generation. And, you know, another thing was it wasn't easy for him to talk about these memories. Even all these years later, you know, it's hard to... Recall these these difficult combat experiences, and you know he says he has nightmares to this day. And um, so I, I think he deserves as much praise for recounting his story as for his wartime courage.
1: And how is hearing about Morgan's accounts of places like Omaha Beach, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa different from the mainstream narratives of these events?
0: Yeah, it's definitely the the little surprises that you hear from people who were there. Like the the incident that jumps to mind is um, at Okinawa, the UDT were assigned to blow up a a row of sharpened stakes that had been pounded into the coral reef by the Japanese to stymie Allied landing boats. And George was involved in this operation, and he said that when he saw the explosion, he you know couldn't believe it they'd used so much demolition in order not to have to go back and you know here i asked him well what happened did you did you guys cheer you know what what was that moment like in the landing craft speeding away and seeing that giant explosion he says no we didn't cheer he said i was startled he said i flinched um, and that's such just a human moment you know here i'm i'm picturing the bravado and cheering but from a from a teenager who was there it was terrifying a a big explosion like that so i mean you can apply that to a a lot of first person narratives where your preconception of event rarely matches the real feelings of of the guys who are there um the men or women who were there and and i enjoy that about reporting (laughs) Do you think the current
1: 21st century 17-year-old who who probably has a fascination for adventure would relate to George Morgan? Um, Is he a good role model, do you
0: think? I think absolutely a role model. I mean, stepping up to serve his country at 17 years old. uh, You think about the courage that took swimming into enemy beaches before anyone else, just such commitment to a cause bigger than himself You know, I I compare that to what I was doing as a 17 year old because demolition that's difficult work. Uh, You know, you're working with explosives, there's no margin for error there. So it's not just physically taxing running in the soft sand, it's mentally fatiguing and high stakes work. Um, So, of course, he's to be applauded and emulated. And young men to this day, I, I visited the USS Midway, which is a a big carrier in San Diego and you know, we were walking on the, the deck and saw the catapult and they said, it's mostly teenagers or early twenties who are working this catapult. And they said, you look the wrong way, you step the wrong way. That's a fatal mistake. So um, people do are following his example, young men and women putting their lives on the line at a really young age, doing difficult high stakes work. And
1: outside of George Morgan, Uh, what people do you want to highlight as pivotal to the success of the UDT mission? Who else did you write about? I know you mentioned uh, Kaufman is one example.
0: Yeah, Kaufman. Absolutely. I I also wrote a bit, uh, quite a bit about Admiral Richmond Kelly Turner, who was the commander of amphibious forces in the Pacific. And I don't, uh, he, he is really the creator of the UDTs and Draper Kaufman has given him credit as the creator of the UDTs. They grew out of our disastrous amphibious assault on Tarawa um, where the marine landing boats got stuck on a shallow coral reef because we'd misjudged the depth of the reef and Marines had to wade ashore under you know horrific. Japanese fire, heavy casualties. So Turner, after that, said, we need to reconnoiter these beach approaches and clear any uh, shallow coral reef or enemy obstacles before the troops hit the beach. So his idea, his vision, and then Draper Kaufman, who I mentioned, is really um, deservedly the father of naval combat demolition. He launched the first naval combat demolition school at Fort Pierce, uh, was also chief instructor at the Maui training base, and then commanded a uh, the number of UDT operations, include, including their first major daylight reconnaissance mission at Saipan, which is where a lot of those experimental tactics that we were talking about first uh, first occurred.
1: How did Draper Kaufman draw from his experience fighting the Nazis in France and the UK to create the Navy's first combat demolition school?
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Draper's war started even before America entered the war. He enlisted to fight the Germans as they were spilling into France, and he volunteered as an ambulance driver captured by the Germans. And a condition of his uh, release was that he wouldn't take up arms against the Nazis. First thing he did when he got to London is join the Royal Navy, and he, uh, he got on a, a naval bomb disposal team, diffusing unexploded bombs around the UK. And I mean, as you can imagine, <laughs> just stressful work, you have to be so precise. And to answer your question, mental toughness was so paramount. I mean, they were losing guys because just a single slip of the hand, a, a mental lapse, that's it when you're working with bombs. Um, So he, he carried that lesson with him in the creation of the training at Fort Pierce in the, the development of hell week, you know, teaching guys to operate on no sleep, exhausted, fatigued, um, and to have that confidence and that, uh, you know, mental focus to be able to get through the training and the missions and, and also to build that spirit decor, you know, that if, if you can make it through Hell Week, you're, you're truly a demolition man. So it's kind of how his experience led to uh, the formation of Hell Week and th- that early training.
1: Are there any resources, museums, or books you can recommend for the audience who would like to learn more about UDTs?
0: Yes, Uh, the few I mentioned, National World War II Museum, um, both in person if you can, or their websites, National Navy Seal Museum. Um, I also had a chance to visit a wonderful museum. It's called the National Museum of the Pacific War in Fredericksburg, Texas. Highly recommend it, Uh, it's outside Austin and it was described to me as a Smithsonian in a small town. And it is so that just incredible immersive exhibits, oral histories with, you know, the men and women who were involved in the war. Um, and then for books, I, uh, a good jumping off point, there's a book called The Frogmen of World War II, and it was just an excellent oral history collection. I think it's so fun to read uh, in the words of, of the men themselves. So you uh, can look that up.
1: Your writing style is that of a journalist? Um, if you were crafting this story over sixty years ago, how would you structure it?
0: I think I would probably want to follow characters the way I did. I, you know, I, I wonder if I would do much differently. And there was great narrative nonfiction writing back in the forties. I mean, you, you look at, you know, John Hershey, New Yorker writers, nineteen forty-six, Hiroshima is just considered a a pivotal work in narrative nonfiction following, uh, uh, six survivors of the, of the Hiroshima blast, uh, atomic bomb, just, just masterful. Um, so probably I would, I would like to do a narrative nonfiction piece even back then.
1: What journalist from the world war two era do you think had it right about covering these topics? Ernie Pyle. Um, is mentioned in your book.
0: And I do. I have so much respect for Ernie Pyle. Um, You know, for those who aren't familiar, just wrote these simple, honest columns spotlighting the average American soldier. So he was embedded with them. He was sharing meals with them, riding along in vehicles, living in the foxholes with them, and covering just some of the biggest events of the war, the London Blitz, Pearl Harbor uh, you know, and then of course, Omaha Beach, which I, is a scene in my book. Um, and suffered some depression just from uh, experiencing <laughs> these, these huge battles and also vicariously through his writing. Um, and you know, I follow him through to his, his tragic death in the Pacific. Um, another one I'd love to spotlight is Joe Rosenthal, who I mentioned in the book, who's famous for the flag raising photo at Iwo Jima, but I encourage people to look at his other incredible photographs across the Pacific theater and Guam and Palau islands, just an amazing photo journalist. Um, and then another one is Martha Gellhorn, you know, somewhat overshadowed by her very famous husband, Ermin- Ernest Hemingway, but she was the first, um, woman or the only woman on June 6th to land on D-Day and one of the only journalists well before her husband arrived and just a beautiful writer, Martha Gilhorn.
1: Were the UDTs able to draw any lessons from the Normandy landings? And also what about actual training in the U.S. before combat?
0: Sure. So the ACDUs, um at Normandy their commanders didn't have any combat demolition experience. And some of the more junior officers who'd been through Fort Pierce and Hell Week, they said, we need to go in before the, the wave, the first wave. Um, but the, the high command decided, you know, element of surprise is necessary. And we don't want to be tipping off the Germans by sending in the demolition men first. So. It it created difficulties at Omaha Beach when you had our infantry hiding behind the obstacles that the demolition men were assigned to blow and instances of tragic friendly fire. So the UDTs drew a a very big lesson, which was to deploy in stealth ahead of landing forces and to be able to work unencumbered uh, on enemy beaches. As, and then as for training, we mentioned, you know, Fort Pierce, the, the conditioning was just such an emphasis because combat demolition is so rigorous, running in the soft sand and uh, climbing beach dunes. So they're, they're training at uh, Fort Pierce. They had a couple islands, vacated islands where they were practicing blowing up uh, replicas of en- enemy obstacles, German obstacles. So they definitely uh, trained trained hard. But... Um, you know, as I write in the book, <laughs> Omaha Beach, they had to uh, come up with a lot on the fly.
1: And what about intelligence? These UDT teams had to be at the forefront of secret service, we can imagine. Um, are there any unclassified topics that
0: made into your book? Definitely. I, so it was all classified during the war. Um, Draper Kaufman was very strict about a media blackout, which uh, forbid reporters from writing anything about the unit, um, including Ernie Pyle. He, he knew of the UDTs. He wanted to do a story about them. Uh, but Draper Kaufman decided that it just wasn't worth the risk to his men to uh, for the Japanese to have knowledge of, of the UDTs. He said they could easily devise a countermeasure as simple as you know, planting some mines on the ocean floor and blowing them up while the swimmers were in the water. So it was the right decision to to keep it classified that kind of the, the unintended consequences is that they didn't get any publicity. So they came home um, practically anonymous. People hadn't heard of the UDTs. There was one Saturday evening post story about them, but, and a lot of them kept it secret for long after the war, kind of remembering that the code of silence Um, and that's part of the reason people like myself just hadn't, haven't heard of the UDTs.
1: Can you overview the UDT men's standard issue equipment?
0: Yeah. Again, very minimalist, uh, swim trunks. They had fins, uh, which were in in their very early days, swim fins and dive masks. Uh, you know, they were used pretty much just in the niche sport of spearfishing, uh, manufactured in, in Los Angeles, you know, my hometown. Um, and uh, knife, they had a knife for cutting fuses and detonation cord. Uh, they were divided into buddy pairs, which is another tradition that the seals inherited working in buddies. And each buddy uh, group got a, a reel of fishing line, um, which we described to measure the ocean depth, and then a plexiglass slate for recording the depth measurements. And that was it. <laughs> and, and oh, of course for demolition missions, you know, they're, they're carrying these heavy packs of tetratol explosives and fuse igniters. And, um, they, they had primacord it was called, which was this fuse that floated on the water, looked like a big, uh, yellow clothesline and burned at a very high rate. So for explosives missions, they, they had a little more equipment, but, uh, definitely not, Armed to the teeth.
1: What about the UDT's largest operation in Okinawa, Japan?
0: Yes, uh, the largest operation of the war, a thousand swimmers involved. And by that point in the war, the Navy had really perfected fire support, which we haven't really talked about, but it's important to the UDT story. It's a line of battleships, destroyer, and gunboats behind the swimmers who were lobbing shells onto the beach to keep the Japanese pinned down while the swimmer's in the water, and that's a large reason they didn't sustain uh, as, as many casualties as they initially expected at Saipan. They expected it to be a suicide mission, and so we were pounding the shores of Okinawa, put out the lights in some towns, and, you know, I mentioned one of the missions to to blow up the, the Japanese log barriers. They were working in incredibly cold water there, uh, so, you know, they had... Cramps. I write about working over coral reefs, so that you have to worry about coral poisoning, and then of course the kamikaze planes. They they weren't even safe on their own ships, and UDT men often had to to man the guns on their ships. Um, and it was a tremendous success uh, in that the Americans landed unopposed on Easter Sunday, and and the Japanese did not defend the beaches and and that's in part a credit to the UDT that, that our amphibious landings had been down to such a science, including that gunfire support, that the Japanese just ceded the beaches to us and, and moved inland. And then, of course, it turned into a very bloody battle. And
1: Operation Olympic and the subsequent occupation of Japan, what was that all about?
0: So, right. Operation Olympic, it didn't happen. And so it's all speculative, but I do touch on it in my book. Um, but the UDTs were preparing to be involved, expecting the coldest waters they'd experienced, you know, up there in, in that Japanese home islands. And their their mission would have been to scout the beaches for General MacArthur's uh, giant uh, landing. And it, it, it was going to be a very bloody battle. The Japanese were fortifying their beaches heavily reminiscent of the Germans at D-Day, unlike at Okinawa where they seeded the beaches. They were stockpiling uh, supplies and and covering all the probable landing beaches with machine guns and mortars and amassing kamikaze planes. Uh, so of course, the atomic bombs made that invasion unnecessary and, um, But the UDT still were the first ashore onto the Japanese home islands, the first naval forces. And and that was occupation duties, which I write about in my book, um, stripping battleships of their armaments, blowing up suicide boats um, and kind of paving the way for our occupation forces in Japan. And ultimately, how did UDT help save the Pacific from the Japanese overall? Yeah, I well, I really see them as the tip of the amphibious spear. Um, you know, amphibious warfare is all about getting troops ashore as quickly and as efficiently as possible. You want to avoid log jams, and that was what the UDT enabled: um, scouting the beaches, approaches accurate measurements of the, the coral reef, getting our boats ashore as quickly as possible with no log jams the way you had at Omaha Beach um, with our landing craft piling up on the the Nazi barriers. Um, and then as well, you know, and George Morgan uh, mentioned this, he said, I think it's it was really a confidence boost too for those young Marines hitting the beach to know that somebody had been there first, you know, that they weren't that they weren't they, – they knew what they were going into to some extent and that somebody had arrived first. It was just a, a bit of a morale boost, and I, I see that and agree with that. Can you explain R&R? Sure. Uh, rest and recuperation, um, I write about it in my book in the context of the the Ulithi base, uh, which is an incredible kind of unknown little uh, – the chapter of the war it had a, a temporary population the size of Dallas, a giant R&R base on this little atoll way out in the Pacific, and a uh, big chapel and outdoor theater for evening shows. And, uh, you know, they had big barges making fresh bread and ice cream. So it was really a, a floating city for the U.S. Uh, and, and where we um, staged for, for Iwo Jima. Um, and then it's, it's the, but the recuperation you know I write about this in the book they had a hospital on the island and you had some marines and guys who were in combat for three four five months and just you know that's where that million yard stare came from it's, it's the, the ice cream and warm beer didn't didn't always do it. it you had some really deeply traumatized men tell your audience about
1: UDT combat swimming training training on Maui.
0: Yeah. So the Maui base, uh, we in Draper Kaufman was lead instructor. Um, well, we talked a little about the stealth swim. They practice blowing up, they practice blowing up coral reef and, um, and also, you know, volcanic rock, which was a lot trickier to blow. I write about that in the context of Okinawa, um, one anecdote, I remember George telling me about the Maui training was that the instructors would get them up really early and their base was pretty, pretty primitive right on the slope of Mount, uh, of Mount Haleakal big volcano. And they would go driving around the Island looking for the biggest waves they could find. And it was, you know, probably a laugh for the instructors, but there was also some uh, strategy to that and that they wanted the men to get comfortable in all types of seas and rough ocean and not to be afraid of the ocean. Some guys were good swimmers, but they washed out just being afraid on the open ocean. It's, it's a little different than swimming in a swimming pool. So the, the emphasis at Maui was, was swimming and some of these pioneering tactics we've discussed underwater warfare. And the story of George H.W. Bush
1: bailing out of his airplane is in your book. It really makes me wonder if any of the demolition team members that you mentioned were close to capture or death during this time.
0: There is a famous story, and it's not in my book, but the USS Burfish was a submarine that a team of UDT men deployed in the Yap Islands. It was one of the first Deployments of combat swimmers from a submarine, which now is, you know, we associate with the Navy SEALs doing that. And tragically, several of that team were captured and tortured by the Japanese and uh, really never seen again. Um, So it did happen. I asked George about that. Was there the fear of capture? And I remember him telling me we just didn't even think about it, didn't even talk about it. And it was almost just something so horrifying that they, they, blocked it out and you know it wasn't wasn't something they were chatting about they did have some training in jiu-jitsu not a lot but that was happened at maui um, and then of course they had their knives and were taught how to use the knife if necessary they were really only responsible up to the the dune line on the beaches so uh, they weren't often going inland um like, you know occasionally would have a an assignment on dry land but most of the time, they were in the water and able to use the water as cover. And what
1: about enemy demolition teams from the Axis powers?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting uh, topic that I, I get into a little bit. Um, the Italians were very were very advanced in this respect, both in World War I and World War II. In World War II, they were using uh, something called the pig boat. It was a horseback torpedo with you know a couple divers riding on this torpedo as it moved just under the water surface, and a warhead at the tip, and they were wearing these early oxygen breathing apparatuses, you know, early scuba equipment, which we were experimenting with at the time, it didn't integrate into the UDTs, but they take the the warhead down under the water using this breathing equipment and attach them to the hulls of British battleships uh, in the Mediterranean and had a pretty high success rate of uh, knocking out British battleships. The British deployed a team of divers to counter them. And, you know, the legend is that there were underwater knife fights um, in the Mediterranean between the British and and Italian divers. And then as for Japan, uh, they were developing a a unit of swimmers called the Fukuryu which um, I call in my book, it's like a nightmarish version of the UDT. These were teenagers who were preparing somewhat in the context of Operation Olympic, the invasion of Japan, to dive under our landing boats and stab the hulls with a pole charge, um, which would have killed them and the entire team. And even some of the instructors in the Fukurio program were saying this is a huge waste of life. Why are we doing this? And... Uh, and it, they were never deployed, uh, but an interesting uh, combat dive unit.
1: And what do you hope people take away from your book?
0: As I see it, the UDT really didn't get the credit they deserved. Um, we we talked a little bit about the media blackout, and so I hope people recognize just the incredible contributions of demolition men and, um, you know, I think about that in terms of the CBs and just some of the workers, you know, who were clearing away for the boats. Didn't have the same fanfare and glamour, but just were integral to the to the war effort. And uh, and then I hope it's a, a page turner that that readers and historians alike will enjoy. And traditions
1: and techniques of the Navy SEALs. What about the UDTs did they inherit? What transitioned into the Navy SEALs?
0: Yeah, we talked about some of the tactics. The one um, – so I I wrote my book about this kind of rebellious attitude among the underwater demolition teams, and they did have a reputation growing long, tangled beards, wearing just swim trunks. You know, everyone else is wearing a uniform. Um, there's a couple – fun anecdotes about planting signs on the beach, welcome Marines to prove to the Marines they'd gotten there first. And uh, I have this anecdote about a few young swimmers walking on the beach and MacArthur was landing the famous photographs of him um, in the Philippines coming ashore at Leyte and, and one of these young, these young swimmers, they had no idea who he was and they'd been on the beach working it. And, uh, you know, who was this guy? And a major ran up and said, why didn't you salute? And, uh, so they, they had a bit of a reputation as the problem children of the Navy. I, you know, and, and I asked George about that and he said, that wasn't his experience. He said we were all very followed orders and we're doing our job and, uh, you know the Navy SEALs does occasionally get that irreverent elite attitude, uh, but I think that, you know overall it's their the silent professionals doing the job and without the f- fanfare for the most part. Um, so I, I think there's there's also the the uh, you know in addition to the tactics there's there's a similar attitude. Were wives and families
1: of these demolition team members uh, mentioned in your book?
0: Yes, I wrote a lot about George's family. I thought that was so important to his story, getting to know him as a character, his upbringing. I mean, he was only 17, so your family is everything at that age. And I uh, got to know his dad working on, I personally, but uh, writing about his dad working on Wall Street and, um, you know, taking him to a ball game. And uh, so, and, you know, his mother, of course, terrified for his safety and even writing in her diary, the realization that he was injured on the same day he was injured, which is a fascinating little detail that I included in the book. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, UDT family members, I've had the opportunity to talk to them. And uh, one gentleman, emailed me, said, my uncle was a UDT man in the South Pacific. And he said, I always knew he was a hero. And I'm so glad you're telling this book. So people have uh, had UDT uh, ancestors in the family and it's just, there's not a lot out there on it. So people are appreciative uh, that their story being told.
1: Where and how did some of the demolition team divers transition back into civilian life? or did their stories go on into Korea and Vietnam?
0: Yeah, so a lot of men did uh, transition back, you know, and just came home, got jobs like George. Um, Some stayed in the UDT, and they did indeed go on to operate in Korea and in Vietnam. By the early 80s, they were pretty much, they were fully absorbed into Navy SEAL teams. Navy SEALs saw their first action in Vietnam, but yep, they were, they were still, still working in Korea and Vietnam.
1: And are you planning to do more work on naval or military topics?
0: We'll see. I've come across some other interesting military topics, uh, but might want to explore something totally different.
1: Where can the audience or readers, anyone interested, find your book and Are you hosting any in-person events?
0: Uh, Yes. So it'll be available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Target, Walmart. Uh, And I'll also be hosting an event at Diesel Bookstore in West LA. It's uh, Saturday, August 27th at 3 p.m. And all are welcome. New Books Network,
1: your host, Nathan Moore, and Andrew Dubbins thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this podcast on history. Stay tuned for more episodes like this one right here on NBN.